Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome to episode 104 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's the Geometric Vertex episode of the SLS Cast because in regular geometry, 104 is the smallest number of unit line segments that can exist in a plane with four of them touching at every vertex. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I just finished my math for fucking ever for college. And I thought I would just release a little bit of mathematical know-how on you people. And coming back from a wonderful Thanksgiving break, this is, of course, Matt. Is this, like, do you find this, like, math that you learned the type of math you will remember from here on out? Or is this the type of math that you will forget probably tomorrow morning? When you wake up. Oh my god, I, it is definitely the latter. As a matter of fact, I really struggled with my final because it was a comprehensive final. And I couldn't remember half the shit because I'd already forgotten it in the time that it took to go to the next segment of the class. So I was cramming yesterday, watching videos and trying to remember all the formulas and plugging shit into the TI-84 and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. But that's all right. I think... Um, I am comfortable with the fact that I probably got a C in this class, so... So how did your mind feel after watching that movie Freebirds? Did it enhance Honestly, your IQ I at all? I think I would have preferred <laughs> math <laughs> to Freebirds. That's rough. That's, that's how bad this... And you know exactly how much I fucking hate math. So, yeah. It's okay. Matt is totally racist against turkeys. That's right. No liberation for turkeys! I am... I am all about turkey concentration camps. Oh, God. That's, that's what gives us our Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. If Matt uh, had to choose what side of the Berlin Wall he was going to be on, he would be on, on whatever side with the Russians. Whatever side the turkeys were on. That's the, wherever the turkeys are at, that's where I'm at. So uh, you could, yeah. like, murder the turkeys so you can put them in a gulag? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Or a turlog. A turlog. for turkeys, yes. Mm. Uh, speaking of Thanksgiving, I was very excited because, as I was saying, uh, I can't remember if I mentioned it on the show or not, but I did get to have my pantsless Thanksgiving. It was fantastic. Were you the only one pantsless, or was it like a like the a oh, communal you can, no, pants? Kids were like in pajamas yes. all day. Uh, the wife was, you know, just round and basic, you know, like the... Uh, Thong and socks? You know, just basically hanging around in the house clothes, you know? Yeah. It was... Oh, it was fucking awesome. You were you, like, literally in your skibbies, or were you wearing, like, Oh, no, just shorts. my regular shorts, you know. Yeah. But seriously, I didn't have to wear... Uh, just, just my basic... I uh, got these just kind of workout-style shorts that are just for hanging around the house and everything, and that is what I wore. And by shorts, do you mean, like, basketball shorts or, like, a banana hammock? A little wiener dingler? No, 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 no. I wouldn't subject anybody to that. Uh, it was just the basic... Uh, basketball shorts yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. They were great. Thank Elastic, God. naturally, because it was Thanksgiving. <laughs> there were mass quantities of food involved, I'm sure. Yeah, I do not want to see Matt and his swaying dumbbell bringing <laughs> me a plate of turkey. <laughs> so what about you? What, what, what did you end up doing for Thanksgiving? Uh, well, I... I my Well, you know, I went to my family's 
uh, or got together with my family at my aunt's house for Thanksgiving. Everybody was there, you know, the classic family get-together where there are loads of people you want to see, and then there are loads of people you do not want to see. And so I guess it was just normal, maybe. It was it was entertaining. Ate a lot, drank a lot, did Thanksgiving right. Um, of course, I'm the I'm the guy, a part of the, I'm the I'm the family guy who, um, or the one in the family who likes to play with the kids most of the time because, uh, you know they're they're usually more fun. <laughs> they're like out playing you. football, out playing soccer, you know, running around chasing. You know, my aunt lives on a uh, quite a big uh, piece of property. She has a pond, a pool, awesome plants, little woodsy area to go walk around in. Uh, but I gotta say that this will probably be the last year I ever make an attempt to look nice for Thanksgiving. Because every year I dress nicely and nobody else does. Everybody else is in their pajamas. They're wearing their sweats. They're wearing. I their... never could understand that. Why do people get dressed up for Thanksgiving? Like, I understand, um, you know, not wanting to necessarily be dressed like a slob or something. Especially if you're going over to your families and, you know, it's you don't get to see them very often. But I could never understand the whole getting dressed up aspect of it. Unless you were, like, going somewhere nice or it is somehow a big dinner party for some reason. I can Why Why do you dress up? Or why have you been dressed? Because I saw your picture when you you changed your little thing on your, your picture on Facebook. And, I, and it's definitely from... You know, I could tell you were playing with the kids outside, and there you are, and looking sharp as usual. But you know, with the with the slacks and a nice button-up shirt, and I'm like, he's playing football with kids in a yard. Why is he dressed up? I don't get this. So why, why, Tim? Why? Well, if I was a douchebag, <laughs> I would answer that by saying, all I owe are suits and ties. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I've seen you outside of Thanksgiving, so that wouldn't hold up anyway. <laughs> well, I, I think it's because of of it being a holiday, and I, I, for some reason in my mind, when I think of Christmas and Thanksgiving, I think of well, you know, looking nice. You know, it's the one day out of the year where you know where where to me at least, you know, I, I kind of want to put a little effort in the way I in the way I look you know, with taking pictures because like if I take a picture in front of the Christmas tree, you know, I want to look. I mean, I want it to be a picture that I can maybe hang up. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't just be a picture of me, but, I mean, it would be a picture of me, the girlfriend. Are you the, the Barney Stinson of your house and yeah. your family? Is that, is that what it is? It's, I mean, you can't take a bad picture? No, well, I mean, I could. That's the crazy thing. As you can see by my Facebook picture. But, you know, I like, I, I mean, I want to look, I guess, presentable. You know, I'm not talking about, people don't have to wear suit and ties. I'm not saying that. But, like... You know, a nice pair of slacks. You know, nice jeans and a in a in a decent shirt, a collared shirt, a polo even. You know, it, I mean, whatever. It's just something other than, you know, I'm gonna wear greasy, you know, a, a grass-stained T-shirt that I wore last night after playing volleyball for three hours. Not that anybody did that, but you know, it's but I I, I don't want to pose with that person and then post it on my wall. Post it on my wall, or I should say, hang it up on my wall. But yeah, I, I guess that's the reason why. You know, I just like the whole, you know. But but it kind of came back and bit me in the ass because every year I always have, I, I always drink Jack Daniels and Coke. Uh, 
or Jack Daniels with Coke. Not cane, but Coca-Cola. <laughs> and so sure. uh, as I'm drinking it, I'm out playing with my cousins and say, okay, well, you know, Cousin Tim has to take a break as I reach for my Jack Daniels. And I'm drinking it, and then one of the kids runs into me, and I spill it on myself. Not a big deal. Go inside with the with a rag um, and clean it off. Not to mention that it was one of my... I got the shirt that I was wearing as a gift, so it was kind of an expensive shirt. But I, I like it, you know? Like, every, I think every guy, um, unlike women who like the... I mean, they, they love clothing. You know, a, a majority of women, I guess a stereotypical woman, loves clothing. But I think every guy, you know, there's that one shirt that they like. There's that one outfit that they like. Whether they admit it or not, there is something that they have in their closet or drawers that they always enjoy wearing. And when they do, they feel empowered. Maybe not empowered. Maybe they just feel good. And that's how I was with that shirt. You know, it's like it complimented everything. Uh, but, you know, getting the soda on it and watered, cleaning it off, you know, not a big deal. It wasn't until my cousin came up and squirted suntan oil on my shirt, completely ruining it, ruining it, <laughs> until I, uh, I I got it dry cleaned. And so that is why I have decided from now on not to dress up for Thanksgiving or any other holiday where kids are going to be around. Uh, you know, especially if sun oil is. Well, I mean, that's what it's worth. If. That had been at my house, my children would not have squirted you with suntan lotion. What would they have squirted me with? Anything? Nothing. I mean, they probably would have just colored on you, but uh, you know, that that I'm sure would come out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's different. Uh, yeah, that's that's the so that's great. But yeah, I gotta oh, well, I gotta ahead. ask though. Um, yeah, because I experienced something for the first time uh, while. Uh, well, while coming back to Los Angeles from Texas, um, ah, ch- child childbearing fever from the significant other. I'm sorry, I told you it was happening. I told you that's what was happening when you were here. Well, other than I'm that, sorry, other than that. Um, so uh, okay, despite coming back to Los Angeles with you know stepping off the plane, and the first smell is not of oranges, but of the glorious scent of California grown wild. OJ Kush Green, you know, just wafting through the through the morning air, you know, it's like, oh, I'm in California, not for the oranges, but the smell of green, green, green weed. But what I couldn't help but notice is that I stank badly. Like I had I had I had I had crazy body odor. And I do blame it on the flight. I mean, I, I honestly felt like while I was sleeping. Somebody was grinding right up on me. Every time I kind of nodded off, somebody was like, you know, jazzing up my arms or something with their with their with their member and, and buttocks. Like I, I smell like a taint, to be honest. <laughs> Glad you're familiar with that. Um, no, I, I've had similar experiences the last few times that I've flown, and I really think it's just because they make an effort to cram the airplanes full and then you're just i mean it's all just recirculated air so i mean you're just getting recirculated bo from 300 people and yeah so i feel for you sir Mm. i know we're running a little bit long uh with this but i i found this 
a little bitty, I guess, piece of interesting news that I wanted to share with you. Um, it was from an article from, uh, I guess it's PressTelegram.com. And the article is, Relive the Pan Am Experience by Dining in a 1970s Era Replica 747. That is right, folks. Two guys by the names of Anthony Toth and Talat Captain. <laughs> uh, they re- they found a 747 in in what was uh, well, apparently it's an airplane graveyard in the middle of the Mojave Desert or somewhere in the Mojave Desert, and decided that you know they wanted to bring back the elegance, the lifestyle of dining inside of a Pan Am airplane. And uh, just really quick here, um, this article says this. From the lights to the drink service to meal service to the entertainment provided on board, it was all five-star. They served on real china and real crystal glass to drink out of. They had real silverware, white tablecloths. It was like eating in a five-star restaurant. They made flying attractive and fun and more affordable in mainstream society. Now, that is how dining used to be, especially with Pan Am, which was one of the, I I think it was uh, number one, if not like the top, one of the top three airlines throughout the 60s and 70s. So back in those days, riding an airplane was an American treasure. It It was a treasure that the entire world enjoyed. And now, in regards to the actual plane that they uh, uh, that they uh, that they refurbished, this is what this article says: Passengers will be greeted by stewardesses, stewardesses dressed in authentic 1970s Pan Am uniforms, which cost Toth as much as one thousand dollars a piece. They will lead passengers into the cabin where they can check out Toth's creation and mingle during a cocktail hour. Then the passengers will take their seats, either on the main deck or its upper deck lounge, where they will be served dinner like the real airline did back in the day. A multi-course meal on real Pan Am china and glassware. There will be no movement in the cabin to simulate a flight, but there will be sound effects in the form of the auxiliary power unit hum that's heard in airplanes. After dinner, the passengers will be able to to tour the rest of the air Hollywood facility and see other aviation products set uh, or aviation products sets that include the cabin used in, in the 2011 comedy Bridesmaids and the cockpit used in the 1980 classic comedy classic airplane. Now, Matt, how much do you think it will cost a fellow like you or I to eat in either the main deck dining room or the upper deck lounge. Okay, now to be clear, this is not a real plane that you board. Because I know it's not flying, but this is not a real plane. That This is just a restaurant made to look like the inside of the plane? It is, no, it is, a, it is a refurbished 747. Made to look like a Pan Am uh, airplane. Okay. Uh, all right. Because that does change the pricing structure a little bit. Right. I'm going to say, uh, and is this a full service menu or is this an a la carte menu just like you at a regular restaurant? You come in and just kind of order what you want. Uh, what they say here, it's a multi-course meal. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to go with main cabin, not even first class. I'm going to say $150 a person. 
Okay. And what do you say for the upper deck lounge seating? Upper deck lounge first class seating. Let's um, three fifty. Close with the last one. Uh, to sit on the main deck, to dine on the main deck, it is two hundred and sixty-seven dollars a ticket, but just for thirty dollars more at two hundred and ninety-seven dollars a pop, you can eat at the upper deck lounge, or on the upper deck lounge, or at the upper deck lounge. Two hundred and ninety-seven dollars. Well, I sure do hope that uh, they're not just serving you airplane food. <laughs> Hey, I have seen, the, there were some pictures, uh, a few uh, image albums floating around on Reddit uh, over the last week that showed Pan Am service from the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. First class, literally, from the first class. And these chicks, not only did they look amazing, in the, and of course the the outfits were very chic and very sexy and everything, they literally, they're slicing prime rib at the fucking in the aisle right there and pe- and serving people as they slice the prime rib directly off the tray. Um, they're walking around with full drink trays on their shoulders and handing out the silver platters leaning over to do the orders. So, I mean, it's going to be like a full on experience, but I still don't think it's worth 300 bucks. You could actually get on a plane and stink yourself up for $300. I mean, I don't know. That Maybe is true. You get to smell like food. Yeah. For $300 instead. I don't know. Maybe an airplane Salisbury steak is worth the $300 these days. <laughs> With your one uh, mushroom to garnish. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, I have email. Actual SLS cast email. People really are starting to use this now. Email like coming. A whole two of them. Email. Um, in- including Johnny White Trash from like, you know, two months ago. Um yeah, so if you want your emails read on the air, or even if you don't, because it's probably what's going to happen, uh, if I see them, <laughs> you can do that. Email us, the show at slsgas.com. Uh, this one actually comes, uh, full disclosure from my cousin Jacob. Uh, he lives in Minnesota, if I remember correctly, and he is super huge film buff and very, very critical of movies and so we had chatted about interstellar and so he sent me an email and he says hi it's jacob i watched your podcast and really enjoyed it i thought you guys were pretty on point about the movie this is regarding interstellar i felt the exact same oh spoiler real quick spoiler so close your ears for like five seconds i felt the exact same way about the awful matt damon and matthew mcconaughey fist fight one, two, three, four. Five. Okay, spoilers over. Overall, I agree, but I was surprised you gave VHS Viral a higher score than Interstellar. And so I wrote back to him and let him know that uh, I said, Hey, Jacob, I'm glad you had a chance to listen to our podcast. I'm also glad that you agreed with our assessment of Interstellar, as it means you're qualified to review films. Uh, <clears throat> so that was a joke. I'm just kidding. You know, you don't have to agree with us to be able to review films. It helps, but you don't have to. Oh, oh, I, I did not know that. <laughs> maybe that, maybe I've been telling, I've been telling everybody the wrong thing. <laughs> we don't listen to your opinion. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, uh, um, but uh, go, moving along, though, I said, as far as VHS viral goes, when I went back and looked at Rotten Tomatoes, I was really surprised at how lambasted it was. And um, I did ask him for his specific thoughts. He hasn't gotten back to me on that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I really was surprised, Jacob, that uh, VHS viral did not do as well overall with the critics uh, as much as Tim and I had enjoyed it. Um, so, and, and I know that I enjoyed it more than Tim, but I mean, that's just the way the cookie kingdom crumbles as far as that goes. Uh, we also, I need to give a little shout out to a buddy of mine at work, Mr. Chris, who just started listening to the show and he is a big fan of movies as well. And he thoroughly enjoys art house movies. So I'm just wanting to let you know, see, I care. I listen. I mentioned you on the show because, well, you need to listen more. You're not listening enough. And now maybe you will. Go see Birdman. If you haven't seen it by the time I talk to you at work, I'm going to be really pissed off. And let's see. We also got, uh, we have followers now from uh, Twitter followers. And that's really cool. But these are all old ones from our old email address, which I finally got set up forwarding correctly. So we're just now getting all this stuff. And uh, so... These are all people who have been following us for a while. Uh, people like Raphael and Chelsea. My new friend Chelsea. Hi, Chelsea. And um, D-A-P-F pod. Um, Annalise. And then, uh, yeah. people, And also, we have people like War Machine Horse and Diana. So, yeah, there's that. We've got people who follow us now on Twitter. This is awesome. So, you can always follow us on the SL, um, on at the SLS cast as well. So yay! Fun times. Now what? Should we go ahead and get back to the kind of regular stuff that we normally do? I I think it's about that time. I mean... <laughs> Did we do, pretty much just kill everything? I mean, is there anything we can... Is there another holiday we can absolutely ruin? Well, we do have Christmas coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, well, I'm going to ruin that a little bit later. All right, so I guess then, without further ado, because it is 23 minutes of ado at this point, here we go, folks. It is the news! Now, I've got a pair of stories to open up the news, and it turns out that it's really just been a really tough time for Sony. First of all, we have um, from Wired.com, courtesy of Kim Zetter, Sony got hacked hard, what we know and don't know so far. Now, this is actually, um, over the course of two weeks has this information been coming out? The initial hack took place on the 24th, or actually maybe even a little bit earlier uh, than the 24th, so getting about a week and a half or so, I guess, um, of November was when Sony was initially hacked. And ostensibly, what, what, what has happened is basically there was... The hackers who did it, um, and there have been reports that it's from North Korea <laughs> because they're pissed off about the interview. <laughs> um, I could see them like distributing the data, but I don't see them hacking it in the first place. Um, 
There's also another group that's claimed responsibility called Hashtag GOP. Uh, but ostensibly, the hackers claim to have stolen a huge trove of sensitive data from Sony, possibly as large as 100 terabytes. Now, they have we, there have been lots of reports of, so far, only something like 40 gigs have been uh, disseminated, or, yeah, right, disseminated, uh, that the public has seen. Now, to Certainly give you an idea... Certainly not inseminated. <laughs> not inseminated, disseminated. Um, and Ooh, that turned sexy real fast. Yeah, it did. Now, to give you an idea, one terabyte is 1,000 gig. Okay, so if only 44 gig have been released, and they have had... 3,800 social security numbers released, and these are people who work for Sony. And we're not talking about higher-ups. We're talking about just general people who work for Sony. Salary negotiations, um, HR documents, sensitive HR documents, things that go through when they have to do layoffs and stuff like that. Um, Scripts for movies that have come out, that have not come out. Um, It's basically just been terrible. And what, this Wired article does not link to any of the data itself, so you cannot see it. I'm sure if you are a devious, thoroughly hateful and spiteful person, you can find the data and view it yourself. We're not going to tell you. Um, this is just like, this goes to show you just exactly how, whether or not you agree with any kind of politics or whatever you think companies do and don't do, or uh, are they good, bad, indifferent, whatever... This goes to show you just exactly how devastating hacking can be on the big level. And I am just completely uh, shocked. Now, to go with that, unfortunately, they are now part of a target of a round of lawsuits that have come out. And this comes to us from uh, Bloomberg.com, courtesy of Joel Rosenblatt. Evidence of alleged Apple-Google no-poaching deal triggers more lawsuits. Now, back in 2011, Apple and Google um, were and were basically put into lawsuits uh, because uh, class action lawsuits and various other lawsuits stemming from no competing now what they've done is they did on the wage level what all the cable companies are doing on the public level where uh they quote don't compete (laughs) with each other on agreement now on paper you're like okay well i guess that's nice but what they're doing is they are doing no poaching agreements where they say we won't try and steal your people and you don't try and steal our people now the thing is is while that sounds all honky-dory those agreements artificially keep wages down because Apple doesn't have to worry about paying anybody anymore and Google doesn't have to worry about paying anybody anymore uh, because no one's going to take you away from us, so you have to do what we say. Well, the initial round of lawsuits had Google and Apple, but directly related to that was also Adobe, Pixar, Intel, Intuit, and Lucasfilm. Now, The key to this is Pixar and Lucasfilm, because as we all know, Disney now owns Pixar and Lucasfilm. Because of this, these lawsuits and all the due diligence, we now have a round of lawsuits that have come out from this year relating to them. So included now we have 
Pixar, Lucasfilm, Walt Disney, DreamWorks, Image Movers, and Sony Pictures. Um, I mean, this is just... Could things... I mean, this is just really kind of a dark time for Sony. I feel really... I feel both kind of bad for them, and then if this stuff proves to be true, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. But, I mean... Ah, it's just just terrible. Terrible all the way around. I I mean, I, I sincerely hope these lawsuits do pan out so that people who were truly ill-affected get their day and get to have their say. But at the same time, I seriously hope it doesn't bring down like six different animation branches and technological branches of all these different companies, um, especially in the movie world, at a time when places like the VF, when, when the VFX industry is already strapped for cash and strapped for people. Um... Yeah, it's just rough all the way around, man. So that's that is my first bit of news. Though that that bad news for Sony. Uh, Tim, what do you got for us, sir? Alrighty. Well, my first bit of news is actually James Bond news. That is right. There is enough news for there to be James Bond news. Um, now I know Matt here. Has a little bit of James Bond news, which I'm sure he'll get to momentarily. But I, you know, there's, there comes a time when you're, you will be able to mention Stephen Hawking within the same sentence as you, as you mention James Bond, 007 or whatever. And that time is now. For according to ScreenCrush.com in Jacob Hall of ScreenCrush, Stephen Hawking wants to play a James Bond villain. And this is what it says. Stephen Hawking may be the subject of a biopic poised for Oscar gold with the theory of everything, but it turns out that the renowned theoretical physicist has very different cinematic aspirations. In fact, if the brief history of time author has his way, he'd play a role typically reserved for a menacing European character actors. A James Bond villain. Although he's obviously joking, Hawking told Wired, via The Telegraph, that his appearance makes him perfect for an enemy of 007. If anyone else had said that, they'd run the risk of being offensive. After all, Hawking was confined to a wheelchair after being diagnosed with motor neuron disease when he was a 21-year-old student. All these years later, he's still not afraid to poke fun at himself. Quote, My ideal role would be a baddie in a James Bond film. I think the wheelchair and the computer voice would fit the part. End all quotes. Now for my next bit of James Bond news. Daniel Craig is blaming Austin Powers for messing with or for ruining ruining the the James Bond flair the James Bond cheese forever tainting it for the future James Bond films in a 2012 interview with the Bond fam site MI6 uh this is from 2012 but uh, avclub.com here uh resurfaced this information Craig says that the reason the most recent Bond era has been so serious is because when he joined the franchise in 2005, 
a certainly, or excuse me, a certain dentally impaired secret agent parody had rendered Bond's campy past irrelevant. Quote, We had to destroy the myth because the Austin Powers movies fucked us, says Craig. I'm a huge Mike Myers fan, so don't get me wrong, but he kind of fucked us, made it impossible to do the gags. In quotes. What do you think, Matt? Do you have any comments, questions, concerns over either of these two pieces of James Bond news? Well, I, I think that it's admirable that Stephen Hawking wants to be a bad guy, but I I don't ever see that happening. And as far as to be fair, he Dan- was kidding though. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I did not hear that part. I apologize. Um. Yeah, on the on the other side of the Daniel Craig thing, as much as as much as he's being tongue in cheek about it, he is right. I mean, everything that was fun and campy when the James Bond films were being fun and campy, even though they were still blockbusters and everything, um, that is exactly what allowed Austin Powers to exist. So naturally, when Casino Royale rolled back around, they did have to change it up and they did have to make it. A lot more serious, and they couldn't have anywhere near the amount of fun. Um, and I don't know. I'm looking for. I am looking forward to Bond 24. This is going to be fan fucking tastic. I'm sure. And to be fair, uh, with the, especially with the Timothy, Timothy Dalton Bond films, they. I mean, they were already getting more serious and more dark. You know, even back in the 80s. I mean, you, you can even look at. Uh, okay, so like the Timothy Dalton movies, his two movies were pretty serious and definitely more were definitely violent. Then you have the Pierce Brosnan movies. Goldeneye is very dark and very violent. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies is a little bit more campy, but it's still pretty much a straight laced action movie. And World Is Not Enough is is kind of goes <laughs> back to the goofy and Die Another Day are, are very goofy uh, Bond films. But then you look at Skyfall after the serious turn with uh, Casino Royale and uh, and and Quantum, Quantum Solace. Solace, and even yeah. with Skyfall, they do introduce what's his name uh, as the Javier Bardem's evil villain, who is kind of like a classic Bond character in a way. So I think they're slowly kind of going more towards it, but more towards like the Sean Connery early Bond cheekiness. Well, I I will say that while Javier uh, Javier Bardem's bad guy was definitely more flamboyant and was truly out there, he was definitely not someone to be trifled with. Oh, true. And yeah, I think that's the balance that has to be struck. You can have someone who's a little outrageous. Who is somewhat flamboyant, but as long as you're willing to back it up with, but I'm still a serious motherfucker, and you are going to die. I mean, I think we can. I think we can all win on that. And that actually is a great segue into my next piece of news, which Tim referred to briefly earlier from TheMirror.co.uk. Bond 24 villain revealed. Sherlock star Andrew Scott to take on Daniel Craig's 007 in new film. This is, of course, courtesy of Hannah Hope. The actor who plays Moriarty, or played Moriarty in Sherlock, has been handpicked for the role in the new James Bond movie. 
Now, I don't know if you are a fan of Sherlock, or if you're not, if then uh, they're all on Netflix, so you really should go check it out, because holy shitballs is it amazing. But if you want to see the best take on a bad guy you could possibly imagine, and then just know that he's going to make a good villain, you definitely still need to watch Sherlock. So, um, yeah, Sherlock fans, rejoice! Rejoice! This is just absolutely outstanding um i don't know tim are you familiar with andrew scott at all Mm, the name does sound familiar well i mean did you watch sherlock at all oh i love sherlock yes yes so you saw him as moriarty and sherlock oh yes yeah so that's him oh yes i am a fan all right (laughs) <laughs> cool. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, because we've taken so long, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up my news there. So, Tim, do you have anything else? Yes, I'm going to go through these last pieces really fast. Um, so, Sylvester Stallone is going to bring back the Expendables for a fourth time. And uh, this is from CraveOnline.com, where they uh, interviewed Sylvester Stallone. And I'm just going to re- uh, or uh, pick out two little pieces from this uh, from this discussion here. Um, let's see. Uh, the, the the person reviewing him said something along the lines of, "I'm glad Hail Caesar survived getting shot by Stone Banks," uh, referring to uh, Expendables Two. Just like Gunner came back at the end of Expendables One, so far the only Expendable who actually uh, who actually been expended is Billy the Kid, who was Liam Hensworth in Expendables Two. Is it important that the Expendables preserve? And whoever is your favorite Expendable, you can feel safe they'll be back. So as Stallone says, this is a big conflict for me because in an R-rated film, it is difficult to believe that none of the heroes die. I personally believe. Or, excuse me, I personally just believe that the first, that the characters become identifiable in their demise could put a dark cloud over an audience, exciting the theater after seeing the film. Exciting, I can't speak. Cloud over an audience exiting the theater after seeing the film. But that may change in Expendables 4, dot dot dot. The interviewer, Patrick Hughes, told us that he thinks in the next sequel, the Expendables should travel through time to World War II. Would you ever let the Expendables get that crazy? Stallone, I have actually entertained the idea of putting the group into such an unnatural environment like that. In and out, in a, uh, like that, in, into, uh, hang on. I have, or, in Sylvester, in Stallone? I have actually entertained the idea of putting the group into such an unnatural environment that it, in and of itself, creates extra suspense and tension. The fish-out-of-water scenario. That environment might not be time travel, but it, uh, but nearly just as jarring. End all quotes. Next up, Independence Day 2 will happen. It has been confirmed. Um... And lastly, I found this. I just had to throw it on, uh, throw it in here because uh, I know Matt over here is a big fan of Lars von Trier. He loves every single movie that he has done, uh, especially uh, uh, Melancholia. That is Matt's, I think, all-time favorite movie. I don't know why, but he just loves it. He loves, uh, he he loves what the movie, uh, you know, tries to say. You know about life and and sadness. He he just loves it. What what the conveyance of the movie? Um, but according to Lars von Trier, he uh, revealed 
publicly that he has uh, had, a, had an issue with drinking, with alcohol and drugs, stating that he would drink a, a bottle of vodka a day to help him enter a parallel world that is necessary for creation. However, if he, now that he is sober, I guess, now that he is going to Alcohol Anonymous meetings daily, that is daily, he feels that he will never make another good movie. And this is what he says, quote, I don't know if I can make any more films, and that worries me. There is no creative expression of artistic value that has ever been produced by ex-drunkers and ex-drug addicts. Who the hell would bother with a Rolling Stones without booze or with a Jimi Hendrix without heroin? And again, this was from an article entitled Lars von Trier, I Was Addicted to Drugs and Alcohol from TheGuardian.com. Matt, any comments, questions, concerns about either three of this article, especially Lars von Trier's? Well, I guess that explains a lot for Lars von Trier. <laughs> you can uh, really tell know. when he's running, when he's becoming more sober throughout, you know, during a movie. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, indeed. All right. So I guess now it is time for our. I'm the only one who hated it. Shut up! Enough already, Ballstein! Who cares about Derek Zoolander anyway? They're the same face! Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! Yes, ladies and gentlemen. This here is a segment we haven't done for quite some time, and it is simply the an the the the, the antonym the opposite, right? The polar opposite of I'm the only one who liked it. So this is where we're going to take a movie that was either critically acclaimed or, you know, huge box office success, audiences loved it, any one of those three, any combination thereof. And it's just a movie we hate. We really just don't like it for whatever reason. So I'm going to take it away. Unless, Tim, would you like to take it away since I did news first? Uh, no. All right. This is the mega hit, the 1988 mega hit from Penny Marshall, Big. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. That heartwarming movie of child kidnapping and statutory rape all wrapped up in the cuddly bow of psychological torture of a mom and a kid working at a toy company. But Matt, Matt, they they went to FAO Schwartz and played the stupid chopsticks song on the piano with their feet. Well, great. You can have that little 30-second memory for the rest of your life. But the rest of this movie is complete shit. It is a terrible, terrible movie. It is so sad and so wrong and so angering on so many levels. I don't know how people can get away with calling this a fantasy comedy film. There's nothing funny about this. This is a kid who winds up through basically the traditional setup of kid getting picked on because of X problem. Well, I'm going to solve this problem with a wish. And he goes and he gets a stupid uh, wish ticket to be big. And what happens? He turns into an adult. Well, instead of shenanigans ensue, 
People think that he's really been kidnapped. And the mom thinks that some weird, crazy man, who's basically the 30-year-old version of, you know, her son, has kidnapped him. And then, of course, he has to run and escape. He's got to convince his friend. His friend sneaks away and they go off to Manhattan together. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. Um, he is, like, crying and alone in this scary hotel all by himself on the first night. Uh, you know, meanwhile, people really think that he's gone. The the neighbor, you know, kid, his friend doesn't say anything. I mean, granted, how could you? But you have all these wonderful things, and people are always like, oh, the movie's so funny, oh, you know, the silly string, and oh, I'm going to be on top. I mean, all of these things that are trying to be put off on childlike innocence are basically just the ramifications of this fantastical wish gone awry. But the problem is, is that it's not something that can be taken in childlike innocence when they actually show the realities of this situation and nobody everybody always skates over that everybody always seems to think this is just a light movie and such a funny movie no aside from the fact that elizabeth perkins who i think is like i she's like okay you know how chicks are always digging on sean connery no matter how old he gets this is my version of that elizabeth perkins today yesterday today and forever but, I mean, basically, she's fucking like a 12-year-old. I mean, it does it matter that he's in a big body? It's like if we look at the world today, in California, if you're drunk and she's drunk, y'all are raping each other. I don't know. I mean, you know. So if you ask for ID and they give you a fake ID, it's still statutory rape. But in the world of big, oh, look how cute it is. It's his first love. I mean, I, I, none of this shit makes sense. And yet everybody thinks that they fucking love this movie. I hate this movie. I absolutely hate this movie. There is nothing redeeming about this movie in terms of the film itself and the story that it tells. Is the acting good? Yes. Is the directing good? Yes. And did this launch Tom Hanks and solidify a career for him? Absolutely. And I am glad for those things in and of those things. But the story is terrible. It is an absolutely terrible story. And I hate this movie. But apparently... I'm the only one. That is all. Big. Wow. I gotta say, I, I mean, I was kind of surprised when I heard that was your choice. I was not expecting it. Like, you know, it's like, I, 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 it's like, it's like, you know, oh, we're gonna choose a Christmas movie to, you know, to go against. And like, 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 and if you turn around and said, okay, well, the one Christmas movie I'm going to rip apart is, you know, White Christmas. <gasps> How dare you, sir? How, why would you do that? I mean, that, I mean, big, that was kind of, that was kind of from left field, I gotta admit. Kind of. Hey, from left field. This is the guy whose last pick for this segment was the pianist. Were you really surprised that I picked big? <laughs> I and I absolutely love the pianist too. Pianist. <laughs> there you go. All right, what do you got for us, sir? All right. Well, um not from left field. Uh actually this is from Centerfield where the angels play. Um the classic Christmas movie, The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> is it Christmas? No. Uh Released October 31st of 2004. 
I'm kidding. It was released February 25th of 2004. Directed by Mel Gibson. It is the Mel Gibson family comedy that all the kids took off school to go see five times when it came out that Friday. It was the movie that it was hard to get a ticket unless you reserved two months in advance or you attend your local church who bought their tickets eight months in advance. No, uh, that well, partly that is partly the movie I'm talking about. No, this is not a family comedy. In fact, this is, I'm surprised this movie made as much as it did. As it did. On a $30 million budget, this movie at the box office took in $611.9 million. Wow. So The Passion of the Christ, again directed by Mel Gibson, almost said Mel Brooks. That would have been a totally different movie, but directed by Mel Gibson. This film covers uh, Jesus Christ's final 12 hours as a human being on Earth. Uh, Jim Caviezel played Jesus Christ, which was a role that I don't know if it really ruined his career or what, but you never, you, you don't ever hear of Jim Caviezel anymore. It's been 10 years, and I can maybe think of one movie that he's been in. Like, off the top of my head, I'm sure there's been other stuff, but only one. And, uh, yeah, so the final 12 hours of Jesus' life, which, according to this movie, was absolute hell. Uh, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of up-close shots of things getting, of flesh being ripped from a man's back, uh, people getting trampled on, blood going everywhere, people chanting, people screaming, people crying, a lot of sadness, desperation, and my god, you don't want to do anything, but... I wish you never saw this movie. <laughs> Once the credits finally do start to roll. Um, to me, this... To me, uh, this movie is like the Twilight movie for Jesus Freaks. Uh, like, with Twilight, if you're a big fan of the Ya, which recently I found out meant young adult books... Um, who love Twilight, who love vampires, who love just those type of cheesy movies, you will love every single Twilight movie that comes out. That is your bag. If you are a Jesus freak, if you, you know, God is my savior, I love Jesus, he told me to go out and make a difference in my life, and I did, and I'm gonna cry about it because I love God that much, then you are going to love this movie. Unless you are, well... Unless you're an anti-Semite, then you might even love this movie anymore. But uh, that's uh, that's besides the point. So if you don't get my drift already, if uh, if if you are one who just loves Jesus, who you are a hardcore uh, Christian, if I mean I'm talking about hardcore, you will thoroughly enjoy this movie, despite what the despite the graphic nature of this film. I think the people that do go and see this movie, that absolutely love it, try to find a way to justify the graphic nature of this film, and for some reason is able to find the spiritual uh, the, 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 uh, the spirituality, I guess would be the right thing to say, within a movie that does not have any spirit in it. In fact, the hardcore graphic imagery in this film cloaks... Or it drowns the message that the film is attempting to make. So, 
what's the point? What is the point? How, I mean, if you're going to make a movie like this, I'm not saying that the movie has to be G. I'm not saying the movie has to be PG. I'm not saying the movie has to be PG-13. It could be an R-rated movie. It could be, I understand what Mel Gibson was doing. I understand that he felt destined to make this movie. You know, like he felt this was the movie he had to make and he made it. It could be bloody. I understand he, the movie was graphic. It was gory. You saw some of the most, the, the, the some of the worst things you've ever seen in a movie, in this movie. But the reasoning behind it was not only forced, but I think his heart was in the wrong place. Because you see, the reason why you see the stake going through Christ's hands as he's being put up on the cross, or not put up on the cross, but being, you know, uh, with, with being attached to the cross. Or whenever you see him being whipped with the barbed wire and the chains and the camera just so happens to, to go all slow motiony as the barbed wire gets pulled, gets ripped from Christ's back, where you get to see his flesh being ripped apart. He did that so the viewer could feel what Christ felt. But that's forced. To me, that is forced. And I know to other people that is forced as well. I mean, I understand what you're trying to do, but throughout the, the two hour plus runtime, you see stuff, you see imagery like this a lot. And not only does it become a repetitive, it becomes a little, I mean, I don't know if sadistic, but just way too much. I mean, way, I mean, there's only, I think this movie, literally, out of all the zombie movies I've seen, I have never seen so much graphic detail to be put into a or put into a a moment such as barbed wire ripping flesh from a from from a person's back. It was just a little too much or a lot too much. So, uh okay, so with, with that forced imagery, you have forced audience reactions, you know? So how how else instead of like doing uh, exposition, instead of having a character uh a character study over a guy that, you know, you really don't know too much about, let's face it. Um, you have to do it all in imagery, you know? Not by moving material, not by moving dialogue, but this, but, but this like, very emotional score and imagery. I, I know I'm repeating myself, but I just can't... I, I just, I mean, that's whenever I think of this movie, I just, I, I can't help but thinking, think of that word, you know? Because to me, this, this over, this, that's an overuse, I mean... It's just, it's just bad. Um, now, the only message I got from seeing this movie was to never watch this movie again. And I gotta say, unfortunately, you, I, I tried to find something good in a movie that, uh, in, in a movie that, that I don't like. I mean, I've seen a lot of movies, I've gave, gave negative reviews, but I, you know, I try to find something that I like, whether it be the cinematography, whether it be the performances, and you know what, this movie has uh, beautiful shots, it has great cinematography, I mean, it has good costumes for it being a, a period film, the acting, I, I guess, is really good, I mean, it's not nothing you've ever seen before, I mean, if you've seen Gladiator, or if you've seen, you know, you know, it, it's... It's something that you haven't seen before other than it put to this particular story, you know, or, or, or within this particular storyline, you know, that's the only thing that kind of, you know, jazzes it up a bit. But within a movie about, uh, that, that in a way is about a man's quest to spirituality, or a man's quest, or a man's transformation, there, there's not a lot, there's not a lot to it. 
to, to make you feel what he's feeling. It's not about the pain. It's not about the suffering. It's about the reason people know, uh, pe- uh, people look up to Jesus Christ as, as they do today. I mean, there, there's a reason why he is, uh, the, the, uh, what, what people call, what people say who he is, you know, a savior, you know? And I don't get that from this movie. And to me, I don't really see how people, how other people get that from this movie. So that is why I am the only one, other than critics, who can say that they didn't like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And I'm just going to say imagery one more time, just to piss all you people off who (laughs) are annoyed with that word by now. Well, alrighty then. <clears throat> All right, so next week, our bonus segment is going to be, uh, we're going to Christmas theme it from here on out. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we're going to do Copycat Throwdown, Christmas style. We're going to compare 1947's Miracle on 34th Street with 1994's Miracle on 34th Street and determine which one is better. Yeah. And now... Bringing I'm the Only One Who Hated It to a close, it is now time for... We interrupt this episode to bring you a special tale of Christmas cheer. A Christmas tale brought to you by the SLS cast's very own Matt. His tale of Christmas cheer will be destined to bring a smile to your face and to bring a twinkle to your eyes. So sit back. Relax, and enjoy yourself a hot mug of Christmas chocolate cocoa. And listen to Matt's merry tale of Christmas cheer. Christmas story time with Matt. All right. Where to begin, where to begin. Let's see here. Um, The same year, I remember I told a story about the Halloween where we basically ruined Halloween for some children, my brother and I. The same year that this happened, we also got to uh, create a new Christmas tradition uh, for the family growing up, as it were. We had been inspired by a Christmas story, and so I, I don't recall how it actually came to be. I don't think dinner in and of itself got ruined, per se. I think my mom just was kind of like, fuck it. Um, fuck all y'all, I ain't cooking for Christmas. So if you want something, you're going to have to cook it yourself. And, of course, we're teenagers. We're not fucking cooking anything. And then my dad's like, you know, uh, well, it's it's kind of like I don't want to have to do anything either I work all the time and so we were sitting around thinking about this on the afternoon of Christmas Day and again inspiration from a Christmas story struck and so we were like well do you think Chinese food places are really open now bear in mind this was like 20 years ago so not everything was open on Christmas like it is today And so we were like, I don't know, is it? And so we called up this place called Canyon Pearl. It was one of our favorite Chinese food places uh, where we lived in Oregon at the time. And sure enough, they were open because apparently 
Chinese people do not celebrate Christmas. I mean, I understand that Christmas in China is typically not celebrated, but you would think that once they get here, hey, they'd want a day off too. But apparently no. If you own a Chinese restaurant, it's like in the lease somewhere that, uh, you know, you have to do that. So, um... We end up going down there, and we had a fantastic time. And because, you know, it was 20 years ago, it was also just like in A Christmas Story, where we were literally the only people in the whole restaurant. It was fucking awesome. Now, as much as my brother and I tried, we could not get them to sing Christmas carols. I, however, think that even if we could have gotten them to sing the Christmas carols, they would not have done the fa-ra-ra-ra-ras like they did in A Christmas Story. Um, again, I know that's not very politically correct today, but this was 20 years ago, and some might say it was a better time and a better place, and so we then finished celebrating this wonderful family experience by going our separate ways, <laughs> and me and my brother went and saw Beavis and Butthead do America, um, and that was also when we figured out movie theaters were open on Christmas Day. And uh, I don't know what my parents did. I don't know what my sisters did. Uh, but that is what we did with the rest of our Christmas evening. And that was kind of what we did in our family before we all moved out. And went out. we just ended up doing Christmas dinner at a Chinese food joint. And then everybody would go their separate ways and do whatever else. So, I mean, we'd have Christmas morning. Right? There was the whole presence under the tree and, you know, the kith and kin and all that kind of shit. But, yeah, we'd open presents, hang out for a little while, go get dinner in, in the afternoon at a Chinese food joint, and then pretend like we didn't exist anymore. And that was how we had a Merry Christmas. So with that fun, wonderful, heartwarming story of family tradition, I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas, together or separately, or running away from one another, as your family may choose to do. The movie. <laughs> So, again, we had the we, we kind of stunted the movies due to the holiday last week and everything, so we've only got two movies for you this week. We'll be back to three movies next week. Uh, the movies this week are The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1 and the Thanksgiving holiday favorite, Freebirds. <sighs> All right, which one do you want to do first, sir? I, I think you know I, by, by that grunt and that breath that you let out. <laughs> All right, Freebirds. Here we go, folks. It's 2013 American 3D computer animated buddy comedy film. Uh, it is directed by Jimmy Hayward and stars Owen Wilson, Woody Harrelson, and Amy Poehler. This is basically a movie about time-traveling turkeys. You, you're, you're hearing this right. Time-traveling turkeys who go back to the very first Thanksgiving to get turkey off the menu. And they have a whole bunch of wonderful misadventures uh, in doing so. Uh, but let me sum up for you here. Pizza becomes the new thing instead of turkey. Um, this movie is truly 
a waste of space, time, and money. And I do not understand how it, it on a $55 million budget, I do not understand how it got $110 million. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million of that was from other countries. And it's an American Thanksgiving thing. Like, okay, I'll, I'm willing to cut a break to Canada because Canada has Thanksgiving. Now, it's not when we have it, but they have it. I think it's like the first Monday in October or something like that. But so so I'm gonna I'm gonna let Canada in on that. That's fine. You know, they'll go see the movie. But the rest of the fucking world? Really? Uh this movie, I just cannot even begin to tell you where there's a couple of cute little funny lines in it. My kids loved it. I'm not gonna lie to you. I was bored no shit. Bored to sleep. Three times. Three times. This movie bored me to sleep. I just, is nothing engaging. Um, the animation, I'm pretty sure Shrek 2 has better animation. Fairly certain. Uh, yeah. Um, just, I, honestly, my kids liked it, so I'm gonna get, I'm gonna throw a quarter star at it for my kids liking it. And my personal rating is one, so it gets a one point two five. I, I got nothing to add. Just whatever, Tim. You take it away, sir. Yeah. Um. So, what I, what I realized after watching this movie, it, well, I gotta say that I, I decided one one day after enjoying some herbal, uh, uh something. I thought, hey, you know, I want to watch an animation film. And so I put on Freebirds, you know, since I thought, well, you know, at the, well, at, uh, at that time, my thought process was, well, it's Thanksgiving sometime this year. Why not watch Freebirds? And so I did, and in that state of mind, I made it through four minutes of the movie, and I got bored. If that says anything about this, that uh, about that, about this movie... Uh, it's a kind of a surprise we decided to revisit this film. Uh, so I picked it back up after the four minutes, and I gotta say, the first part of the movie, there were some things I liked. Uh, there were some characters that I did enjoy. There were some gags that I, that I did enjoy. Um, until I, slowly, about maybe, you know, around halfway, I started realizing that most of the characters... About 98% of the characters in this film, and a lot of the things that I laughed at, or chuckled at, or was amused by, I've seen before. It was rehash from either a Pixar movie, a DreamWorks movie, you know, just from other animated films. And that, I I don't know, it's it's weird, it's like, I, I, I really like the idea of the movie. I mean, it's totally kid-friendly, it's goofy, it has potential, but they're, they kind of ripped off Avatar. They kind of ripped off Avatar. I mean, I never thought I would ever say that, but they, they kind of did in some way. I mean, I, don't, I guess I don't want to, I mean, I, don't, I, I can spoil it, but it, I, I don't know. I can't really put my finger on it, but Avatar came into my mind multiple, multiple times throughout the movie. And I, you know, it, and, and I'm just going to roll with it, to be honest. Um, so, you, ha- you have all that. Um, other than its plot, which, again, the outline of the plot 
you know, was 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 kind of strong. Um, it seems as if no additional thought was actually put into this film, you know, by rehashing other characters, rehashing what has already been done. I mean, this is coming from the guy who directed Horton Hears a Who, which is was a successful uh, family comedy that came out in like 2008. He also was an animator on a slew of Disney animated films, such as Finding Nemo, Monsters Incorporated, Toy Story 2, A Bug's Life, Toy Story, and even the TV show Reboot, which Reboot even had better looking animation than uh, uh, than this movie, which is kind of sad. It also kind of goes to show that, you know, it, it sometimes, especially with these high, big budget or biggish budget animated films, it's nice to have a creative team. And with this movie, I got the idea that it was uh, Hayward, the director, writer, uh, animator. You know, it was his. This was his baby that he was kind of the leading force uh, behind it. And it's obvious. It's it's a very it's a very one track minded film. Again, there was some cheekiness to it. The idea of the movie was great. Uh, or was really good. So I give him props for that. But then there's just a lot of stuff you just want to. You just kind of want to slap him a little bit and be like, come on, man, you know, you worked on all these great movies. Did you learn anything from Lasseter? Bring it on. Next time, do it. If there is a next time for him. Because, I mean, this was his This was his second shot after Jonah Hex. Um, let's see, what else did I write here? Uh, things happen just to happen for jokes and progression, plot progression's sake. For example, the people that are hunting the turkeys... They're throwing dynamite at the turkeys. That doesn't make sense. If you're hunting a turkey, why are you throwing dynamite at it? Now, I understand in a crazy, goofy, campy children's comedy, you know, it'd be funny if they just randomly had dynamite. Well, no, they had dynamite to hunt for turkeys with. It just doesn't make sense. And there was a lot of that stuff just for joke and story progression's sake. And finally here, everything I... Oh, well, actually, I already said that, so... Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Freebirds, I give this movie 1.5 out of 5 um, because there was a good story, and there were and even though it is a rehash of other things that I have seen before, there were times that I thought were genuinely funny and chuckle-worthy. 1.5 out of 5. Very good. With a much more generous rating than me. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's see here. I guess that leaves us with The Hunger Games, Mockingjay, Part 1. <clears throat> yes, 2014 American science fiction adventure films directed by Francis Lawrence, and of course stars Jennifer Lawrence, Josh Hutcherson, Liam Hemsworth, Woody Harrelson, Elizabeth Banks, Julianne Moore, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jeffrey Wright, Stanley Tucci, and of course, Donald Sutherland. Now, this is the first theoretically half of the book Mockingjay um, there will be in the future in the very I, I anticipate probably the first week that we're back I assume uh, there will be a discussion on the splitting up of movies uh, into two parts but uh, so that's coming and this movie, okay, so this movie covers more or less the first half of the book. Now, the problem with that is, is that if 
I was I was really pleased in with Harry Potter um, and the Deathly Hallows Part One and Two because by the, when I was leaving the theater after watching Part One, I was like, finally, oh my god, they finally had enough time and they're really taking the time to do the book justice. They're not. You don't have to scratch your head going, why did they make this change? It wasn't necessary. Why do they have this plot line that's condensed or removed? What happened to this character? Or, I, you know, hey, this was really cool. I can understand these cuts. No, 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 you didn't have to worry about that because, man, they got the book in there and they got it in right. Now, they, drop the, they pull the rug out from under you for part two of Deathly Hollows, but that's not part of this discussion. So initially, going into this, I was really cool with it. I was like, wow, because I almost wished that they had done all the movies like that because, man, could you imagine really getting all the aspects of the book on the screen? Well, Mockingjay has kind of the opposite problem. As I was reading the book... The first half of the book is necessary. It's not poor writing or anything. It's necessary, but it's more um, exposition and setup so that as everything comes to a close and everything comes to a head and you get to the actual finale, you don't need any kind of setup. It's there. You know everybody, why they're there, what their place is, how it's supposed to work out, and then you just find out. Ooh, what, well, does it work out the way everything is supposed to go? Yet, the first part of the book, for me, was kind of slow. And if you're going to match the book like that and split it up into two then you really have to stick to the book. Well, they realized, I think, that the book was kind of slow, so then they interject a whole lot of scenes that to kind of spice up the action and pick up the pace a little bit. But when they do that, they take away from the exposition of the book and why the story is set up the way it's supposed to be set up. So it's kind of jarring when you're watching that, and at the same time, the whole tone of the movie is still kind of slow. The other side of that is, is that... Yes, it can be, it, it's a little slow, but you can still really build character, really build intrigue, especially with the interplay between certain characters, and especially as it's opposed to the book. Minor spoiler alert for the book aspect. In the book, um, Katniss and. Um, oh, good lord. What is her name? Uh, and Alma Coyne, the president of District 13, there's this, like, there's this bead of tension between the two of them, and it's set up immediately in the book. And it's important because it goes towards how things are supposed to play out for the rest of the, for the rest of the book. None of that is really there. It's lightly hinted at in this movie, but... I don't know if they're trying to save that for the end, but by the time they're going to get to it in the second part of the movie, you missed your opportunity to really make it count. So I'm not really sure how that's going to play out. But if you're really going to do this kind of stuff and do the book justice and split it up, you need to have these things in place where they happen. And they don't even do the book justice in that regard. So... All of those things in place, in terms of the story, how it works out, the way things are supposed to flow, I really found that overall the movie's just just slow. 
It's not that it's poorly acted. Uh, great performances all the way around. It's just that it's slow. It really tends to drag. And then when you put those uh, action scenes in to kind of spice it up, instead of it, uh, in, instead of it making sense and really trying to keep you invested into the story, it's almost like it's just there to wake you up. All things considered. Now, I went with my wife and my buddy Rob and his girlfriend, Eleanor. We, so, you know, we had the nice double date and uh, had it. We even had the excitement. We got an extra 20 minutes of this movie because we had the excitement of someone actually going into a full grand mall seizure in the theater. So, I mean, you know, everybody was really involved by the end of the movie. Um, but they loved it. Oh, they were just, oh, so good. Me? I, I just liked it. I'm sorry, I, I just liked it. Three stars. A long way down. Bring us home, Tim. Yes. More agreeing. <laughs> More agree. That might be actually the title of this episode. And the agreeing <laughs> continues with Matt and Tim. Now, okay, nice. so uh, if you're a diehard fan, if you're an uber fan, I think you'll love this movie. If not... You'll think it's only a good movie. If you're a skeptic, you'll find it to be a decent film and leave annoyed, which I did. Um, it's way too obvious that it's setting up a finale. Now, my my big issue is that, you know, okay, it, it's fine if you're doing it, but like with like how what Matt mentioned, like how Matt mentioned Deathly Hollows Part 1, in a way, it could be looked at as a standalone movie. Though the ending is open for the next film, it's still a it's still a, a good movie. I mean, it's not a great. Mo- I mean, I didn't think it was a, it was a great movie, but I thought it was still a good movie. It, it kept your interest while still satisfying that quench. Um, this movie does really neither. Uh, you really don't know. I mean, I guess if you read the book, you know what direction it's going. But I think if you haven't read the book. Actually, I know if you haven't read the book, you're still kind of confused. Um, it's it's just so again, it's just way too obvious that they're setting up the finale. Now, my big question is why not edit this movie, like change the pacing, so that it could actually be a standalone film? Just change the pacing, add more to it. I mean, the movie could have been a little, maybe about ten minutes longer. And I think it would have been more satisfying, at least at least for me. You know, spice it up at some parts. When the action is going on, there could have been a little bit more action. There could have been more to it. There could have been more, uh, uh, you know, there could have been more, oh, what am I thinking of? Suspense. You know, you could have drawn a little of that, a little bit of that out. Play with fun. Play with the camera. Play with camera techniques. There were no, like, cool hero shots. There was nothing fun about this movie. I mean, uh, there. I mean, there wasn't really a lot of like hero shots for uh, the first two Hunger Games movie, but there was more story to play with. There was more adventure to play with. There was more action. I did. There was no adventure in this in this film. Now I kind of get that. I mean, I know that this movie isn't supposed to be like the first two books. I know it's supposed to have a kind of a different tone, but there was opportunities. There were opportunities to kind of jazz up the movie a little bit. To really bring, to really, uh, uh, to to really make it more of a home run, you know, there was this. I mean, I'm not saying add more action scenes, like no, I'm not add more action stuff, but there are two main things that happen in this movie. One kind of at the beginning, in the middle, when she goes out and you know she has the arrow and 
you know, th- some action stuff kind of takes place. I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen it yet, which I'm kind of surprised if you haven't seen it yet, since this movie has already, like, brought in over, like, $300 million. It's only been out for two weeks. Um, and then at the end of the movie, there's more action, there's more suspense. Now, I really, I'm one of the few people <laughs> that actually really enjoyed the second Matrix film, because... It is a bridge movie. It is a movie that was not intended by the Wachkowski uh, uh, siblings, so they had a they had to create the need for a for another Matrix film at the same time, bridging uh, bridging the film uh, into the third movie. But while they were doing it, there was a lot of story, exposition, whatever. Well, maybe not explicitly, but there's a lot of story story and new development. But there were big action scenes, which fit for the movie. The entire movie wasn't over-the-top action, but there were awesome action scenes that, that made the movie. To me, I could watch Matri- the second Matrix movie and, you know, not really care about watching the third one. You know, like, my, the, the quench was there. The quench, the thirst was quenched. Again, you don't get that with Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. It's a bridge movie, and that's that's all it is. They needed to edit it. They needed to add, uh, re-edit it, add more pay, you know, play with the pacing, play with the suspense, add a little bit more to it. And they could have taken a a a, a page out of uh, uh, Alfonso Cuarón's book with like Children of Men. There's two really great scenes. Actually, the movie does have Julian Moore in it as well, where there's like a a a a, a, a one shot. Uh, an action scene that involves a continuous shot. You know, like with Birdman, you know, the movie is kind of like a one continuous shot. They could have played, I'm not saying they had to do exactly that with The Hunger Games, but they could have played around with something fun and exciting, entertaining to keep the people, you know, into the film that are not like completely invested into these characters. Now, would that be selling out? Maybe. But I think it, the movie would have benefited from it. Especially if it is a bridging movie, you know, it's it's getting pumped and ready for the next film. You know, the movie there has to be something else there than just me. So the acting was, I mean, there were decent performances, though it was borderline ham with the side of cheese. You know, it was still entertaining. I give this movie three stars as well. I wanted more. We needed more in the film. You know, I think. You know the filmmakers, the produ- the, the 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 company, the production company, owed the movie more. You know the, the fans deserve more. There you go. Or the film itself deserved more. I'll say that. So yeah, three out of five. Alrighty then. So next week's movies are going to be the theory of everything, sabotage, and rage. Now. Am I correct? Sabotage is also on Netflix, Tim? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so Sabotage and Rage are on Netflix. Theory of Everything in Das Theater. Um, so yeah, so that's the movie for next week. I believe that kind of closes out the show and brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Alright, well, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both, slash Cries of Solace. Uh, the special little bonus interjection thing uh, is public domain music, and that was uh, uh, 
attested uh, by the supplier there. And let's see. We, however, are still the SLS cast. So you can go to slscast.com, check us out there. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the slscast. You can also follow me on Twitter at nittwit12345. And Tim actually decided to join the rat race on Twitter officially. Uh, you are at slscasttim, right? Yeah, no? something like that. Yeah. Okay, something along those lines. I'll get that for you. Um, We are no longer on Facebook. um, Facebook decided to change all their terms and some whole bunch of shit. And so, yeah, we're not on Facebook anymore. Fuck Facebook. We'll find something else instead. And then, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Betty Davis, I get to say this. You should never say bad things about the dead. Only good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. (laughs) And if you're planning on taking a plane flight, or going on a plane flight, or taking a ride in a plane, because I cannot speak, apparently, be careful while as you sleep, someone might grind on you. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.